What do you want for your life and your marriage in 2019? That's probably a question you've been asking yourself a lot as the new year is upon us. But what if it's the wrong question? Welcome to the first episode of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we will tackle all things marriage, parenting, and of course, all of that with a heavy dose of sex along the way. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, and I am so glad that you have joined me today. And as we jump into this whole idea of what we're supposed to want for 2019, I do want to help us see that question in a slightly different way. Every month on my blog, to lovehonoredvacuum.com, on the Wednesdays, I do a whole series where we're talking about one big theme and I kind of build on it every week. This month, what I'm really focusing on is are we concentrating too much on what we want out of life and not enough on the potential of our lives, really what the calling of our lives is? You know, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul wrote, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And I've always loved that verse. I think it's so cool that God, before the world was even created, he knew you individually. And he created good works just for you. Like he has specific things on this earth that he wants you to do, that you are uniquely suited for. That is totally cool. Your life has a purpose. But if we unpack that a little bit, like how do we actually fulfill that calling? There's a bunch of things we're going to need, right? We're going to need time to do it. We're going to need energy to do it. And in a lot of cases, we need resources. You know, we need, we need a home. We need money. Maybe he's called you to be giving. Maybe he's called you to share what you have with other people. Like we need those resources. But here's the fundamental problem. Often the way that we spend our lives makes it so that we actually have very little time, very little energy, and very few resources. And I think it's because we see our lives in the wrong way. Okay, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. I'm going to do that a lot in my podcast, but I want to start with a story. A couple of years ago, I wrote a post. It was actually my first post that blew up on Pinterest, um, and it was called, Have You Forgotten How to Be a Mommy? And I'm going to link to it um, in the podcast page and in my blog so you can see this post. But here's what happened. Ohio State University did this really cool study on childhood obesity and and what contributed to it. Like what actually is responsible for childhood obesity? And they discovered three things that were most correlated to actually protecting your kid from getting obese. And they were eating together as a family, reducing the amount of time children spent watching television, and making sure that they got regular and adequate sleep. It was the last one that I thought was mildly surprising. I guess the two first, the first two just totally off the bat, but I would have thought that like exercise was more important than sleep, but sleep won out in their study. But as I thought about these things, I thought, okay, what if these three things weren't really the cause of less childhood obesity, but were instead the result of some other thing that the study hadn't measured? And what if it was actually that thing, that knowledge of how to be a good parent, that was the cause? Because it seems to me that a family that eats to, eats dinner together regularly, that doesn't let their kid have a lot of screen time, that enforces bedtime, is a family that puts emphasis on order, on family life, and on parenting. And the simple fact is that not a lot of parents and not a lot of families do that today. The family that does will also be the kind of family that makes sure that their kids don't develop unhealthy habits. But here's where my thoughts got really sad, Okay. 
If you think about those three measures of good parenting, eating together, eating dinner together, limiting TV time, enforcing bedtime, those things are relatively rare today. But when I was a child, they were totally normal. They were even normal for families that one wouldn't necessarily consider good. I mean, I'm thinking back to my grade three class. And I remember one of the big things we always talked about was what bedtime everybody had. And we were always so jealous of the kids who had like a bedtime that was 15 minutes later than ours. Like everybody had a bedtime. But then I remember when my own children were five, six, seven, eight years old, when we would go to church when we would talk to their friends very few of their friends had bedtimes very few of their friends got allowances very few of their friends had chores these just aren't things that parents are doing that much anymore you know, it reminds me, um, one of the book series that my kids just loved when they were little were the Beverly Cleary books, you know, all the Ramona books, and I'll link to those in the podcast page too. Um, Ramona and Beezus, amazing books that are set in the 1970s. And they focus on this really lower middle class family in a small house who's just struggling to get by. But it's so interesting when you see what's going on behind the scenes about how this family operates, because family meals are a huge thing. Bedtimes are a huge thing. These are all normal things that families all had, and we just don't have them today. You see, people used to believe that there are some things that you just do. They're non-negotiables, okay? Like, like you have to do your laundry. You have to make your bed. You have to pack a lunch. You know, you have to clean up. You have to cook dinner. Like, these are just some things that you do because you are alive. <laughs> now, there's all kinds of reasons why we no longer do all of those things. And we could go for hours on what all those reasons are. But I want to just focus on one of them today. And it's this. There was not an idea back then that life was supposed to be about fun and leisure. And this is really where my series this month is going, and we're going to build up to it. I, I really like the post that, that's going to cap off the whole series. But for today, I just want to think about this. Okay, we have started to believe in our society and even in the church that if you have to work for something, you must be doing it wrong. Because Things are supposed to come naturally because we're supposed to be happy. You know, life should be about feeling fulfilled, about having fun, about doing what you enjoy. Your day job is supposed to be something that you enjoy that fills your passion. And if you're not happy, you're supposed to move on to the next thing. I mean, we even see it in marriage, you know, with so many marriages breaking up. A lot of it is that, like, she doesn't make me happy. He doesn't fulfill me. And so we've started getting allergic to working hard. I mean, I know that I struggle with this. There is nothing that I like more than sitting and watching knitting and watching Netflix. Okay, like let's turn Netflix on, let's knit. And I have to force myself to say, you know what? No, because it's going to benefit my life more if once a week I cook dinner and we have friends over and we play a board game. There's a couple that work, one of them actually works for me, um, and we've been mentoring them. Um, she's written some blog posts for me, Joanna, and, you know, I love them, and they don't have family in town. They're a blessing when they come over. They're, they're wonderful people to talk to. We have a lot of fun. We love playing board games, and yet I don't get together with them nearly enough because I'm knitting and watching Netflix because that's fun. And that's easy. And I think too often we do the easy thing today because we have equated leisure with our goals in life. Like we somehow think that the ideal life is one in which you don't work. You know, it used to be, I think in the 1980s, like money was, was our God. Today, I think leisure is our God. 
There's a reason that God gave us a day of rest, okay? Because the other six days were not supposed to be about rest. <laughs> and I'm not saying that we're supposed to make ourselves exhausted. And I know a lot of you are already overworked. And I write so much about how not to be overworked and not to be exhausted. And I get that. But what I am saying is that basic tasks that make your life more productive and better and more able to fulfill the calling that God has for you, well, they're important. They really are. And sometimes just getting new systems for doing those tasks can turn your life around and can make you so much happier. Because when we spend our lives on leisure, like when we spend our lives on, on a lot of time wasters that don't actually contribute meaning into our lives, we end up feeling more exhausted and depressed than before. So yeah, this is great. We get to relax, but relaxation does not necessarily feed the soul. I mean, I think to a certain extent, knitting does feed my soul, okay, because I need that. <laughs> but but watching Netflix for hours and hours and hours instead of getting together with other people does not feed my soul. And so with all that in mind and with that whole preamble, I want to I return to this idea of New Year's resolutions. One of the biggest things that people make resolutions about every year invariably, and I've done this myself, is about getting in shape, right? You want to lose weight. We want to exercise more. We want to just feel better about ourselves. And that's great. Of course, more often than not, we don't actually lose that weight. And and I know that this is a really sore topic for people because weight is a difficult issue. Our society gives us totally bad, horrible ideas of what our bodies are supposed to look like. And I have this whole routine that I do and my girl talk um, when I come into churches and talk about sex and marriage and all that about how we women... No matter what we look like, we hate our bodies. Uh, when I when I originally wrote my 29 Days to Great Sex series, which I've turned into 31 Days to Great Sex, um, really fun one to do with your husband. The day that I asked women to name five things that you like about your body, that was the day that I got the most complaints. And I had all these emails from women saying, there just aren't five things. I mean... I've been told that I have nice earlobes, you know, or in the summer when I point my toenails, like they're kind of pretty, but that's it. And that made me really sad. I mean, there were a lot of days in that 29 day series that you would think people would have gotten more upset about, but no, it was the one about body image that we women had the most difficult time with. I am, I get it. Like we should not be letting our society, which is making only a certain body type sexy dictate whether or not you feel good about yourself and whether or not you enjoy sex. Because when we have negative body image issues, it totally steals our libido. And that's not good. And that's certainly not my intention of what I want to talk about here, okay? God made you and he made your body and you're supposed to feel good in your body and about your body. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that you always have to accept everything about yourself. Like I have a lot of people who will say to me, I understand that beauty is from the inside, not the outside. And it's the inside that counts. And I agree. When God looks at us, it is the inside that counts. Or I'll have women saying to me, um, I have just learned to love myself. And that's what I'm practicing is loving myself. And that's great. I think all of us need to love ourselves. I mean, God loves you. It's totally biblical to love yourself, okay? Absolutely. Here, however, is the challenge that I want to give you. I'm glad that y'all love yourselves, but can you love your spouse enough to get healthy? 
All right, I'm not necessarily talking about losing weight. I'm talking about getting healthy. I mean, I am not at an unhealthy weight. I'm really not, but I am horribly out of shape and I have had to actually start moving lately a lot because my back is going out. And I don't, I, I, I love, one of the big things my husband and I do together is to go on hikes. We go bird watching. We do a lot of stuff outdoors. And I am noticing that once I'm walking for more than 45 minutes, my back starts to hurt so much I can barely keep going. And so I've had to learn whole different ways of just standing and moving and how to correctly align my core and all that stuff. And I, you know, I used to go to a masseuse and I still do periodically. Um, and she would make me feel good temporarily, but it wouldn't help in the long run because I wasn't addressing the underlying cause, which, you know, is that my posture is horrible. I spend most of my day sitting um, in front of a computer and I don't move enough. And so now I have just learned in the last like two months, I need to stretch every day, really stretch. I need to move. And it's something that I need. I mean, if, if I'm actually going to be able to enjoy my marriage, I need to do these things because otherwise I'm not going to be able to go out and hike anymore. I don't, I don't think that we truly give credence to the fact that when you are not healthy, you're actually hurting your relationship with your spouse and your kids. There definitely is a sexual element here in that, you know, when we're really severely overweight, your libido can be much lower and sex itself can be more difficult. One of uh, the most popular blog posts I have from Google, I get tons of traffic there is, is how to have sex when your husband has a big belly. Like this stuff really matters. And the whole reason that I started to do this series was because I had this one week where it was a whole bunch of different posts, older posts, but women were commenting saying, I don't know what to do because my husband's morbidly obese and he won't do anything about it. And this is so difficult for me. And I do, and I am going to address that this, this month. So I can't just deal with what to do if your spouse isn't healthy. It's also what to do if you aren't healthy. Because, you know, you can skate by in your 20s and 30s and even 40s if you're really out of shape, if you're carrying way too much weight, you can skate by, but it's much harder when to hit your 50s and 60s and 70s. And you owe it to your spouse and your kids to still be healthy. Even, even when you're younger, you know, when you're really out of shape, you may not have the energy to take your kids to the park. You may not have the energy to go on bike rides with your spouse or to develop more active hobbies. And this is going to hurt your marriage. It's going to hurt your kids as they grow up. If you and your husband are not active, your kids likely aren't going to be that active either. And we know how important that is for health. So this is just something that you have to address. And it's not fun. Some things are just work and you don't want to do them. But that's part of what being a grown-up is, I think. And, you know, I'm thinking now, oh my gosh, this first podcast is such a downer. And I don't mean for it to be a downer. And so I want to end on more of a happy note on how we can actually get these things, get these changes going. Because this was really motivational for me. My, my mother keeps sending me links. My mother sends me the best links in the world. She's wonderful. Um, but she sent me this link to uh, a podcast and, and an article by um, a guy, I think his name, I don't even have it in front of me right now, but I think his name's James Clear. And he wrote this book called Atomic Habits. I might have his name wrong, but I know that that book's title is right, Atomic Habits. And it's all about how we can actually change things in our lives. And one of the points that he makes is that often we focus too much on goals 
And right now at the beginning of the year, you may have goals for yourself. You may even have set a goal about losing weight, right? Like this year, I'm going to lose 75 pounds or this year um, I'm going to, I'm going to get in shape. Um, Goals are way less important, he says, than systems. And here's what he means by that. And here's why. He opens the book by talking about the British cycling team. And in the in the end of, of last century, like in the 80s or 90s, don't remember which, but the British cycling team was like super bad. It was terrible. <laughs> and the British government was even looking at stopping funding this thing because it was so bad. And they got a new coach and the new coach had a totally different outlook on this. He didn't want to radically make them train harder. What instead Instead, what he did was he said, Let's take a look at every single little tiny thing that goes into winning a cycling race and let's improve each little thing by 1%. Because if we improve it by 1%, that 1% is going to grow on each other. And as you do little things better each and every day, you're developing these habits that in the long run, just like compound interest... That same idea, when we make little changes, then over time, those little changes compound on each other. And so what I'm focusing on isn't a huge goal that I have for my life. Instead, I'm asking every day, can I take little things and can I do them 1% better? And the key is that these little things have to be about systems. Like it's not just about um, doing you know, adding one thing to your life on this one particular day. It's changing how you do things. So every day, here's just a very simple example. Every day when I'm drying off after my shower, I'm trying to do it super fast because it uses more energy. Okay. <laughs> like and when I go to towel dry my hair, like seriously, get in towel, you know, towel dry it as hard as possible and as fast as possible. It uses arm muscles, right? Like just every little thing that you do, uh, repeat it in specific order, specific time of day. Um, but you add these little things and it's those systems that we put in place that actually change things. People were much better at having systems in the 70s and 80s than we are today. And I think one of the reasons is that we live our lives so much on screens and screens have no time. You know, when I was younger, my life tended to be organized by TV shows, right? From 8 to 8.30, I would watch The Cosby Show. I know that's a terrible thing to say now with Bill Cosby, but I did, right? 8 to 8.30, I watched The Cosby Show, and then I did my homework. But because The Cosby Show was only half an hour long, I could do that and still get my homework done. Now, you can, watch, you can binge watch Netflix. There's nothing automatically that stops you, whereas TV used to stop you once that show was over. That's not true anymore. And so we don't have systems as well. And what I want to encourage you to do is get systems. You know, I've been talking a lot about weight and health, and that is one of the things we're looking at this month is just how are we spending our lives so that we're not living up to our potential. But it isn't only weight and health. You can use this this whole idea in other areas of your marriage, you know, like let's do, let, let's every day, let's, uh, let's take a walk after dinner and just debrief and talk about the day. Or um, every night before we go to bed, we're going to take five minutes and we're going to talk about what your day is going to be like tomorrow. Um, or every night as we're lying in bed, I'm going to share with you my high and my low from the day. And then we can pray about it. Like those little tiny systems that you put in place, they're so small, they're not major. But when you do them, Every day, again and again and again, it builds and you're going to grow closer. This year, maybe what you need is more systems 
and it may not be super fun. And yes, you'd rather be doing something else, but that's what life is. And it's so much better when you get there because believe me, you were made for more. I want, I want to repeat that. Okay. You were made for more. God had specific plans for you before the foundation of this earth. And in order to get those plans done, you're going to need time and you're going to need energy and you're going to need your resources, whether it's money or your home or even your family standing behind you. You need those things. And so let's invest in them, invest in these systems that are going to help you grow your health, Grow your marriage, grow all of these things, even if it's a little bit of work. And I guarantee you, 2019 is going to be amazing. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind the scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Welcome to the Millennial Marriage segment where I talk marriage with a millennial. And this week, my daughter Rebecca is joining me. Yes, and it'll probably be most weeks, to be fair. Yes, because you are the millennial I know the best. Well, yes. That's not fair. because No, Katie's not a millennial. She's Kate, a Generation Z. Yeah, she's one year off. Yes, that's true. Didn't just insult second daughter. Phew. Okay, so what are we talking about this week? <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about an article that a woman named Sarah Cottrell, right, or Cottrell, however you say her last name, um, called How Mommy Drinking Culture Has Normalized Alcoholism for Women in America. Yeah, I remember sharing this on Facebook when it first came out, and it was probably about a year ago, but it was a really interesting article. Yeah. No, completely, because it, it really did tackle what I think is a huge issue that we all kind of laugh about, and it really shows how meme culture... <laughs> as silly as that sounds, can actually take these really important things and make them flippant and go under the radar. Yeah, because what she was saying in this article is like, is like she was looking at her own consumption of wine and she actually sat down and counted and she realized she had a glass of wine when the kids got off the bus. She had a glass of wine when she was making dinner. She had a glass of wine with, din- with, with dinner. She had a glass of wine you know, after the kids went to bed and before you know it, she's drinking five glasses of wine a day. She's never drunk. It's not mm-hmm. like she drinks them all at once and she would never do this with vodka, but somehow with wine, it's okay. Exactly. I think, well, she summarizes it pretty well in her article. Here's just a bit of an excerpt, and we'll link the full article in the podcast description if you want to go read it, but here's just a little bit. She says, As a mother, I find that the number of demands put upon me in a single week dizzying and never-ending. From financial stress to house stress to constantly feeling like I'm not the mother that I could be or should be, the list of pressures and impending deadlines pile up. And so, like a lot of moms at the end of a long day, I turn to the internet and my nightly whine and seek comfort knowing my problems also belong to others. (laughs) Memes, blogs, all those snarky and witty women with clean houses and bold statements of being a hot mess but have some wine has become so normalized, I somehow didn't see it when my one glass of wine turned into five each night yeah and this whole wine thing it has become normalized it's really kind of scary yeah yeah and 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 i think what she's what she's saying too is like it's a coping mechanism well that's exactly it and what i see a lot on facebook and you know all over the internet on pinterest is just this idea of unless i have wine i can't handle being a mom yeah like being a mom is a terrible thing Yeah, and honestly, as someone who is, you know, in my age demographic, who's at the point of life where, you know, you start thinking about having kids or when you might want to have kids, it is just so incredibly disheartening and surprising just to see how much it seems that 
the moms around you don't actually enjoy being moms. Which, and that's not saying they don't love their kids, but loving your kids and enjoying motherhood. Yes. Then, and again, not saying motherhood, finding motherhood fulfilling. Yeah. But honestly, enjoying it are very different things. Yeah, and, and I, I think motherhood is presented as something which you will not enjoy. Exactly. Even in the church, like even even in a lot of Christian blogs that I've read, you know, it's all about, Mom, I know you're tired at the end of this day, and I know you don't know how you're going to get up tomorrow morning or take your next breath, but God's got you. And I'm not trying to minimize the fact that, that a lot of people really do go through a lot of stress, but I think we're making it sound... Like, motherhood is this horrible thing that people can't cope with. Well, and the problem is, psychologically speaking, what you expect to be true, you will live out, right? Yeah. And so if we're in a culture that says that the only way to cope with kids is alcohol, then you're going to expect that kids are not pleasant. Yeah. Or that motherhood is not pleasant. And it just really kind of scares me as to what we're we're leading people towards as a coping mechanism. Because, like, this isn't, this hasn't been the thing forever. This whole wine culture and mommy needs her wine thing really is not, is not, has not been around for that long. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, but when you read Beverly Cleary's books, like all the Ramona and Beezus ones. You love those. I loved Ramona and Beezus. Okay, everybody, you gotta, you gotta buy Beverly Cleary. Everyone's gotta read Even the if you're series. an adult. Just, yes. just, it's so nostalgic. Yes. Right? <laughs> anyway, no, but I loved Ramona and Beezus. And you don't hear about, you know, Mrs. Quimby? Yes, it was Quimby. Yes. Mrs. Quimby having her glass of wine at the end of the night. No, you really don't. And yet it, it has become part of the wider female culture. In a way and that, the thing is, it is even a part of, like, children's shows now. Like, if you look at Disney shows, mom's always drinking a glass of wine. Yeah. So, like, it's not like, well, Ramon and Bees is a kid's book. Well, yeah, but in kids' shows, yeah, it's even a part there. So, yeah. And we're not trying to say that, like, alcohol is a sin, by the way. Like, no. Because I don't think that it is. I don't think there's anything wrong with the occasional glass of wine. I know some people choose to abstain I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Exactly. I think God calls some people to certain things for their own good. Personal conviction issues. Yes, I totally, totally agree with that. But there is definitely a problem if you are using a substance to get you through stress. Exactly. um, As opposed to dealing with that stress yourself. And and this has become part of the wider female culture. Um, Let let me read you one more quote from her article, which I thought was really good. Um, You can't blame me for my confusion, though. I mean, wine has practically become the must-have accessory for modern motherhood. Target now features wine bars. Women's purses now feature hidden pockets to hide wine spouts. That's weird. Yeah, it is. That is weird. And trendy travel mugs regularly feature phrases like, this might be wine, in a adorable curly cue font. You know, just as we were getting ready for the segment, we looked on Amazon and we just typed in Amazon wine accessories for women and so many things popped up. Oh my up. goodness, so many. Yeah, there was like um, winos uh, written on glasses, which stands for women in need of sanity. Um, if you think that you are in need of sanity and only one can can give you that, there's seriously an issue. Yeah, I guess it just makes me really sad because it it just seems a little bit like we're forgetting how to really listen to ourselves, if that makes sense. And so when you have this expectation that life always needs to be horribly stressful and horribly hectic and you never will have, not that you need to have it all together, but you'll never have a grasp on your own sense of well-being and so mm-hmm. you need alcohol to get there, mm-hmm. well, then what happens is you, I I just wonder if people ever actually do experience that sense of well-being or the sense of like, you know, right now it is well, like it's good. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is something new for your generation. Yeah. Like probably more than, than other generations. And so I think that moms have a hard time with my generation a lot because there's so many expectations of even just the fact that you need to have a big house, you need to have perfect Pinterest 
perfect DIY projects every <laughs> night and you need to always have healthy vegan free range type. I mean, how can you have vegan and free range, but you know what I mean? Like that kind of meal yeah. planning. I think there's a lot of expectations on women. And I just wonder if we decide to just stop this whole mommy needs her wine mentality and start thinking, why do I need my wine? Mm-hmm. And deal with that underlying issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe, totally. you know, maybe quit everything for a couple of months. Yeah, like, yeah, if you need wine <laughs> to get you through basic parenting, then something needs to change. Well, because the reality is, like, you do have everything that you need. You have been equipped with everything that you need to be the best parent that you can possibly be. You are the parent who God wants for your children. Yeah. And so yeah. if you can't handle it right now, then strip it back to only what it matters, which is God and your family. That's right. Yeah, get rid of all the extra sports stuff, get rid of all the demands you put on yourself for the house, and just learn how to just have fun and find joy in your kids again. A lot of that, you know, I, I think is also... And that might also... mean looking weird. Yeah, You know, yeah. like, maybe you're the only family whose kids aren't in the sports program, you yeah. know? Maybe your family doesn't buy new clothes. Maybe yeah. you guys don't go on big vacations so that you can take a pay cut at work. Yeah, and you know? so that you can have more sanity. And and it also involves, you know, helping kids to sleep well. Yeah. Um, you know, helping kids to be fun and not to not to be so naggy. And we'll put some links in the in the podcast description to some good posts I've got about all that sort of thing. But uh let me encourage you to take Sarah's test. You know, if this is this is might be an issue for you, count how many glasses of wine you actually do drink a day mm-hmm. and then ask yourself, are you self medicating motherhood? Yeah. Because that's dangerous. It is. Yeah. And there's so much more out there. reader question time. Okay, a woman wrote me this this one, which is kind of a difficult one, but she says, I have discovered that my husband can only become aroused by physical manipulation of his genitals. I have absolutely no problem with this, but I'm wondering why he doesn't become aroused any other way. I mean, I'm pretty, I have no problem initiating, but I'm starting to feel a little rejected. And this also makes the dynamic of intercourse a little off-putting and a lot of work as there's little natural progression. I have to invariably stop everything to get him to become aroused. He doesn't watch porn and he doesn't masturbate, so I can't find a connection there. Maybe I'm overthinking this. Is this normal? Can I do something else to get him to become aroused? He also seems to have low libido, so maybe that has something to do with it. Okay, great question. I would say that the low libido probably is related to it. It sounds like he might have um, a low testosterone issue or you know some other medical issue, which really is important to look at. I have uh, a friend whose husband has been going through chemo, and he was told when he was going through chemo that this was a side effect that could happen and that he would stop getting aroused without something pretty drastic. So definitely get him to go see his doctor. I don't know why we don't see doctors more about stuff like this, honestly. Like, sex is with our bodies and so when things go wrong with our bodies things can go wrong with sex it's totally okay to talk to your doctor there definitely could be other things going on low testosterone uh, circulation issues Uh, it could also be depression you know depression can make arousal really difficult Uh, a lot of weight gain can cause things like that I don't know if this man is heavy or not but um, obesity can definitely cause issues like this And so look at those physical issues. If it's not physical, if his testosterone levels honestly are normal, then I would start looking at more psychological issues. A lot of us are really wounded as children. And sometimes it's because of sexual abuse in our past. Sometimes it's because we were never really affirmed. All of these hurts that can just happen when your kids can impact how you respond sexually. You know, sex is a really vulnerable thing. It's when you're sharing... 
your most intimate parts with someone else, <laughs> literally and, and, and figuratively as well. And you're really burying yourself. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. We tend to think that it's so easy for men and it's hard for women, but it's not like that. It's for some people getting truly intimate is a difficult thing and it's a scary thing. Um, and if he needs actual, you know, manual manipulation, <laughs> which is the way that the reader put it, um, then it could be that he just can't let himself go in order to get around. Because most men, yeah, they get aroused just thinking about sex, looking at a woman getting undressed, he's pretty much ready to go. So if your husband's not, then we need, we need to ask what's, what's the issue there. The other thing that I would always think about in this situation is, does he have a history of masturbation um, or a lot of porn use? She says that's not a factor. And so I'm going to take her at her word. But for other people who might be experiencing the same issue, you know, when you grow up and masturbating quite a bit, you can train your body to only respond to that kind of stimulation, meaning that you need that kind of direct stimulation to get aroused. Your body is so used to responding only to touch, which is very, very specific, that it just it just doesn't respond to anything else. So it could be a history like that. If that's the case, you can retrain your body, um, but it takes some time and it takes open communication about this. So I would check those three things. I would check, is it medical? Um, is there some sort of a psychological barrier that he has, a difficulty being intimate with you, um, difficulty letting his guard down, or is there is there some porn or masturbation use going on, either in the past that hasn't been dealt with or if it's ongoing? So I know that's a really tricky question. I hope that helps. And for those of you who are dealing with stuff like this, I just want to reassure you, there's nothing wrong with you. So many people have sexual issues in their marriage and they wonder why their spouse doesn't respond the way they see in the movies. There's nothing wrong with you. And a lot of this stuff honestly can get better. The key to it is good communication, being able to talk about it, being able to talk about what it was that God designed you for and wants for you in the bedroom. And then saying, you know, if God made something this great, let's not miss out on it. Let's figure this out together. So figure out how to communicate and you'll find that this stuff is a lot easier to solve. Is sex the one thing in your marriage it's hard to talk about? Do you have a hard time telling him what feels good? Do you have difficulty working through your differences in libido? One of the best tools to start those conversations and turn your sex life around is 31 Days to Great Sex. It's a series of short, daily challenges you work through with your spouse that are oh so fun. Check it out today. Every podcast, I like to feature someone's comment from the blog or from Facebook or Instagram or whatever that really spoke to me this week. And um, this this one is actually from a guy and he left it on an older post on women, do we understand what rejection does to husbands? And, you know, it's kind of a depressing comment, but I'm thinking that some of us wives may need to hear it. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. He says, marriage came, baby came, and then sex disappeared. My daughter is three, and my wife and I have only been intimate two times in three and a half years. I am sleeping on a recliner now since she was born, and my wife is sleeping in bed with our daughter, the same bed I used to sleep in because she refused to put our baby in a bassinet, crib, or toddler bed. I love our daughter, and I love my wife, but she is so obsessed with our daughter. She is like a helicopter mom. Wherever my wife goes in the house, she follows her. She carries her around the house like she is a loaf of bread. Don't get me wrong. I love my daughter to death. She's my little angel. Well, my parents have offered to babysit so that we can spend time together by ourselves, and the answer is always no. She said, I will go out only if our daughter comes to. 
I was wanting to have a romantic dinner ocean view with my wife on her wedding anniversary, and she refused to go unless we bring our daughter. I cook, I clean, I do laundry, I pick up groceries, I pay the bills, and it seems like it's not enough, and I feel like I have to earn everything. My wife pushes me away every time I try to touch her, put my arm around her, kiss her, whatever, and it's always the same old excuse. I'm tired, I have to cook, I have to do laundry, I'm watching TV, I have to take a shower. If she's in bed and our daughter is knocked out of sleep, then her excuse is, I'm playing a game on my cell phone, stop, you're going to wake her up, I'm not in the mood, I have to work tomorrow, I, I, I just feel like I'm a roommate and I'm not a husband. You know, that's depressing. And I hear this from so many men. I really do. And I just want to say, ladies, don't do this to yourself. Like, do you hear this guy? He loves his wife. He loves his daughter, but he wants his marriage back. That's totally legitimate. You know, the best gift that this woman could give her daughter is to love her husband. You know, what her daughter really needs is for her parents to be close together. Do not sleep with the child in your bed if your husband is out on the recliner. I know there are some of you who co-sleep. My husband will always tell me whenever I mention co-sleeping that I need to remind everyone that the American Academy of Pediatrics advises against it. He's a pediatrician. He's very touchy about this stuff. But if you let your life revolve around your child and you never have any time with your husband and you only have sex like twice in three and a half years, that's not healthy. Now, there might be other things going on in this marriage. I don't know, but I can tell you that I see this happening way too often to just always assume that it's the guy's fault, okay? You need to examine yourself and just do not let your marriage get to this situation. And if it is in this situation, I'm going to put some um, some links up in the podcast page on how to start having sex again when you've stopped. Like if you realize, holy cow, that that could have been me, but I don't know what to do now. I'm going to put some posts that can help you. But just a reminder, you were married before you were parents. You're going to be married after your kids leave home, hopefully. You want to have that relationship and your child can cannot bear all of your emotions. That's not what your child is meant for. Don't do that to your child. It's not fair to her. It's not fair to your husband. And it's not fair to you. Put the marriage first, please. Everybody is healthier when you do that. Thanks for joining me for our very first episode of our To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm planning on making this a regular thing, and I'm so excited that we finally got off the ground. Join me next week when we continue talking about how we can feed our marriages well and make sure that they're growing and that we're living the big life God planned for us. And here's what's coming in February, too. For Valentine's Day, we'll be talking about sexual health and making sex feel good, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening in. And remember, you can always find me at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. 